This episode is dedicated to Tyler Barrett, Anon Desai, Donald Byers, and Ail Kerid for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. The Southpaw podcast and project is supported entirely by listeners like you. If you want to support the work that we do, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. Share these episodes, follow us on social media. If you're a new listener, make sure to click subscribe. And if you really want to support this project, then become a paid monthly subscriber on patreon.com slash southpawpod. If you head over to Patreon and subscribe for just $4 a month, you will get immediate access to our complete catalog of bonus episodes, videos, and articles. The more supporters we have, the more time we can dedicate to the show, which means more bonuses, such as classic fight commentary, transcripts of interviews, building a liberation martial arts online curriculum, and most important of all, hire and pay for staff. If you can't support us monthly, you can also do one-time donations at co-fi.com slash southpawpod. We also have t-shirts and sweatshirts to not only flex the show, but your own moral compass. By supporting us, you're not only helping us grow, you're also helping us stay and keep this project running. We can't exist without your support. Thank you. This is part two of our two-part series on Cuba with Jonathan Detman. This is Sam. This is Jonathan. And this is Southpaw. Something previous guest Gerald Horn has written about is how in Spanish colonization, religion or religious conversion gave you proximity to the colonizer. So rather than just European versus indigenous or European versus African, it was also Christian versus non-Christian, which you touched upon. So would you agree with this assessment? Yeah, I think so. Um, Franz Fanon for example, has written about how oppressed peoples sometimes adopt or perform whiteness, and, and that whiteness could include Christianity as, as an aspect of it. Um, in order, They do this in order to access privileges associated with being white. According to Fanon, this identification with or, or proximity to the oppressor causes psychological trauma, a kind of double consciousness. Uh, as a white person, I don't feel able to comment on that experience other than to note that in Cuba, for instance, proximity to whiteness um, or the ability to pass as white has often been a route to social advancement for persons of color. Um, one of Cuba's most famous novels called Cecilia Valdez revolves around the drama that is produced on one hand by this desire to pass as white, and on the other hand, by the predatory behavior of rich white males who saw in uh, black women or mixed-race women a kind of an easy easy conquest, uh, sexual conquest. Would you say then that kind of like how disease was a herald for colonialism and making it easier, 
would you say that Christianity in Spanish conquest ended up being a form of divide and conquer? Yeah, I think in some instances, uh, it was certainly tied into the project of colonialism. So for instance, in the 16th century, when the Spaniards would claim a new territory, they would read a legal document called uh, Requerimiento. And they would usually read this in a very ceremonious way in front of whatever local people they could force to stand and listen. And, and this document said, in essence, that the land now belonged to the king and queen of Spain, that its inhabitants were now vassals of the crown, and that the native people should become Christians of their own free will. And then, of course, it goes right on to say, well, by the way, if you don't do this of your own free will, if you don't acknowledge the rule of the Spanish crown and the Pope, well, we're going to make war on you, enslave your wives and children, and take all your possessions. Um, so the demand to convert was pretty clear uh, and pretty clearly associated with the imposition of political rule by Spain. Um, also, the early administrative unit that Spain used in their conquered territories was uh, known as the encomienda. And this word itself means trust in the legal sense of the Spanish trust holder having rights and responsibilities over the land, but also over its inhabitants. And so like medieval peasants, indigenous peoples were thought to belong to the land, to be almost a part of it. And so then part of the responsibilities of the trust holder, right, um, who was the the manager, right, of, of this parcel of land. Um, you know, that person acted more or less like a feudal baron and could demand tributes and labor from the indigenous population. But they also had the responsibility to evangelize the native people. Uh, so there were a lot of forced conversions. Uh, there's also the use of missions uh, as a kind of frontier institution designed to implant Spanish culture and religion at the edges of Spain's expanding empire in places like California. And so some of these missions became de facto fiefdoms in their own right, uh, just run by priests instead of soldiers or friends of the crown. So the sword and the cross definitely went hand in hand. And there's a reason that people are tearing down statues of both priests like Junipero Serra in California and soldiers like Juan de Oñate, the conquistador of New Mexico. I think people can't understand the anti-religion, especially the anti-Christian stance of many revolutionary movements without understanding all this context. Like with the U.S., you can't understand black separatist movements of the past without understanding what assimilation meant. It meant making white and the white gaze the default, and that's still very much the case, though we are beginning to challenge that. In the same way, religion was about what becomes the default and who becomes your enemy, who get to become people and who becomes devils or inhumans or heathens. I've seen it with Koreans as well where they will side with white Christians over Koreans who maintain their classical culture. So this is also about cultural genocide and making you the accomplice of your own colonization. 
and this is me not speaking for you, but speaking for myself as a Korean person of color living in the United States, but also witnessing and being aware of what's happened in Korea. And so I'm adding my own context to Cuba. The way I learn about a lot of movements and a lot of history, it resonates very similar. And it seems like there's a lot of similar patterns. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's a really good observation. And, and what you said about you know, becoming human, I think, is, is spot on when we're talking about Spanish colonization, because there was debate, uh, at least in the early years, about whether Native Americans were even humans, right? Whether they had a soul. And it took basically a, de- a decree from the, the Pope, a, a, a kind of a legal ruling, right, to, to make sure that that was um, acknowledged, right? Well, okay, they are actually, they're actually people. But even then, they didn't get what we would today call human rights unless they converted to Christianity. And so, yeah, part of colonization is the, the imposition of the colonizer's culture. Um, Christianity was definitely part of the common cultural background of Europe. And even more than that, before the emergence of modern nation states, Christianity, what was defined, what, what was what defined European borders, European, European identity. There's, there's an old saying um, that Africa starts at the Pyrenees, and that meant that, that Spain was really more African than European. And this idea, which is a racist one, uh, has to do with Spain's long history as an important Muslim country prior to the eventual imposition of Christianity as a national religion. Um, and so likewise, we see today sometimes uh, that uh, Turkey, Turkey's status as a European country or potential EU member um, has been sometimes disputed on similar grounds that they're not truly European because they are a a country with a a majority Muslim population. Um, The late scholar Sabah Mahmoud uh, produced some brilliant work showing how the modern European political culture of liberal secular democracy continues to owe a great deal to Christian ideas. And in other words, then, Europe as an identity, Europe as a political project, uh, Europe as a set of colonizing powers, right, Um, whether we're talking about France, Spain, Portugal, right, Europe uh, is inseparable from Christianity. Um, And Christianity has certainly been a tool for domination. But I think it cuts both ways um, because both religious and political ideas can sometimes be repurposed by colonized people. And so we see this with liberation theology in Latin America. Uh, We saw this with the Haitian Revolution, which took the ideals of the French Revolution further than the French themselves had done. And even with the Cuban Revolution's adoption of Marxism, which is also a political project of European origin, but which has been influenced by and modified by people's movements in the global south. So I guess what I'm saying is that it works in both directions. Colonizers impose their culture, both their intellectual culture and their material culture. Um, But the colonized invariably find ways to resist, right? And when they do so, they adapt certain aspects of the colonizing culture or they reject others. Um, Religion is is an obvious example, but we could also look at, at music 
Or, for instance, the way the Namanu or Comanche people um, appropriated horse culture from the Spanish to shape themselves into a powerful confederation that for a time was able to keep the expanding U.S. at bay and even alter the eventual borders of Mexico. And going back to your comment about the soul, especially in that period, soul meant if you were a person or you were something else, not a person. So you can see then at this period why race didn't necessarily need to become formalized because to have different races of people, you would first have to recognize them as a person, right? So back then, it seemed like it was much more black and white, where it was people and not people. Yeah, the justifications have changed over time, but the the categories themselves have proved um, remarkably resilient. Other than Spain, were there other Western powers trying to claim Cuba? Um, Yeah, uh, several European countries, including France, England, Portugal, and the Netherlands, um, of course, had colonies in the Caribbean. Um, But Cuba, um, since it commands the entrance to the Gulf of Mexico, uh, it became very important to Spain's military and economic interests, and so they they did keep a tight grip on it. Um, nevertheless, there were attempts to invade um, during the 1500s, for example. Um, these were mostly pirate incursions into several port cities. Sometimes these pirates were, in fact, um, financed or or um, sponsored by foreign powers. Um, the French. Um, in 1555, uh, did occupy Havana briefly, um, but the Spanish recovered it. And then Spain's control of the island was not again seriously contested until 1762, when the British took Havana during the Seven Years' War. So historical note, the Seven, seven Years' War was really the first global war or world war um, between or among the the various colonial powers. Um, It's the war known in the U.S. in our usual self-centered way as the French and Indian War, as if it only took place um, in in what is now the United States. Um, And so at this time, uh, the British took control of Havana and, and occupied it for less than a year. But this brief occupation sparked a number of important changes on the island. Spain had tended to keep a tight lid on commerce in Cuba, but Britain loosened restrictions and began to allow the introduction, uh, among other things, of large numbers of African slaves. And this gave Cuban business people uh, a taste for free trade, and more importantly, for the wealth potential of slave trading and slave plantations, the things that would shape the island's destiny for the next century and a half. Lots of things were happening in Cuba in the 1800s, not just in and around Cuba, but also in Spain. Can you tell us about this period of reform, annexation, independence, and anti-slavery? Sure. Um, Indeed, a lot happened during the 19th century, um, including several attempts to overthrow Spanish rule, the rise and eventual demise of the slave economy, and a U.S. military occupation at the end of the century. So the early 1800s saw the explosion of the sugar industry. And with that, of course, came an increase in the slave trade, the enslaved population of the island, 
and just a whole bunch of dilemmas for the Spanish landowning class, which was becoming fabulously wealthy thanks to sugar, right? And also the slave trade. Um, the The dilemma for for these um, Spanish landowners, these Creoles, was essentially as follows. They really wanted to run their own affairs without too much political and economic interference from Spain, right? They began to see the example of other Spanish colonies who were following the lead of the 13 British colonies in North America. And so Spanish colonies were beginning to gain their independence. They were forming republics. And most Cuban elites wanted to do this, right? Because they were liberal in both political and economic terms, meaning that they favored representative government and free trade. Because those were things that, as they saw it, would produce um, favorable conditions for for economic development and commerce, make them even more wealthy and prosperous. The conundrum, though, was that they depended on Spanish military power for their security and to maintain slavery. These white Creoles lived in constant fear that they would become another Haiti where the enslaved population had rebelled and killed or expelled most of their white oppressors. And so white Creoles in Cuba feared that the the power vacuum left by a departing Spain would mean their own demise. And so during the 19th century, Cuba saw a series of attempts to solve this dilemma. Um, They wanted to increase their autonomy and or reduce their dependence on slaves. And one idea um, that we've mentioned was that they tried to increase the white population through um, immigration of white laborers from Spain primarily. Um, Another tantalizing idea for many of these Creole planters was the idea of annexation by the U.S., in which case Cuba would form part of the bloc of southern slave states. And as a a visual example of this, one need look no farther than the resemblance between the Cuban flag and the Texas flag. These Cuban autonomists, uh, including, or I should say annexationists, technically, um, including people like Narciso Lopez, who tried to invade the island and overthrow the Spanish government, um, these people were inspired by Texas's successful fight to become independent of Mexico, and they thought perhaps Cuba could do the same thing, overthrow Spanish rule, and eventually be annexed by the U.S. And then while all this was going on, and, and what was essentially producing the dilemma felt by Creole elites was the resistance of enslaved people. There, there was a radical Afro-Cuban historian named uh, Walterio Carbonell, um, who anecdotally, as a student in Paris, he climbed the Eiffel Tower and hung a 24th of July movement flag up high where the cops couldn't reach it. Um, the 24th of July movement was the, the, the Castro guerrilla movement in Cuba um, during the 1950s. Um, and so Carbonell, um, who was a, a partisan of of that revolution, he wrote a book that excoriated Cuban historians, including other Marxist historians, for their myopic focus on a small group of white Creoles 
rather than on the black masses as the principal actors of Cuban history. Carbonell wrote about how the conflict between the Creoles and the Peninsular Spanish was really a minor squabble compared to the deep conflict between white colonists and enslaved Africans. And he made a compelling argument that Cuban culture itself, um, whether we're talking about religion or music, um, really owes more to the black majority than to a handful of white lawyers and writers. And the same could be said about the United States. Absolutely. In cultural terms um, and, and in terms of our historiography, um, there is a, an almost single-minded emphasis, right, on those 13 colonies, on those first um, pilgrims and pioneers. We talk less about the South, right? We talk less about the fact that well, the first colony was actually not Plymouth, right? It was Jamestown, which was in Virginia, which became a slave colony. Um, we don't talk about Santa Fe, right? Um, where um, the Spanish colonists had established colonies um, that were contemporaneous with, with those eastern colonies. And, and we don't talk about the role of, of New Mexico in the um, rise of the United States or the formation of what became the United States. Um, we don't talk about a lot of things that are sort of inconvenient to the narrative of these pilgrims coming over because they wanted religious freedom. Uh, they were oppressed in England and here they found freedom. And, and we had a glorious revolution that uh, gave us uh, democracy and it was all inspired by God. And, you know, these are the sorts of things that, that we are, taught either explicitly or implicitly as school children in the United States, right? And also the idea of manifest destiny and progress across the continent, right? Anything that sort of throws a, a wrench, right, in the gears of that narrative tends to be ignored. And to that point about religious freedom, it's wild how religious freedom for Europeans looks like oppression and colonialism for everybody else. Right. And religious freedom is still a way to criticize and attack a lot of third world movements, liberation movements, and so forth that I mentioned previously. But in this context, you can see why that criticism, where historically it's coming from, where it's grounded from, how this whole thing started, and why there's a resistance to that, because religious freedom doesn't necessarily mean freedom the way people think. Right. But in going back to the U.S. then, how did the U.S. end up occupying Cuba? Well, the U.S. in the 19th century already had territorial ambitions beyond uh, what were then its borders and even beyond its present-day borders. Um, so by 1848, uh, for instance, the U.S. was already a transcontinental empire, right? It had seized all of northern Mexico, and it had its eye on other parts of Latin America, farther south, um, or in the Caribbean, including Cuba. And so some of these, these territorial ambitions um, were interrupted by the Civil War, um, but often the U.S. simply decided not to attempt further territorial expansion due to domestic opposition, um, because there were those um, congressmen and, and other politicians who argued against the attempted incorporation 
of Spanish-speaking countries due to cultural and racial differences. Um, so already back then, the idea that that Latin America was racially different and racially inferior was quite prevalent. Um, and you even see this in more contemporary times, um, these sorts of attitudes about um, the compatibility of other countries with uh, things like democracy. I remember during the, the Iraq invasion under George W. Bush, there were Republicans, conservatives to the right, even of George W. Bush, who were arguing against the occupation of Iraq on the grounds that Iraqis could never learn how to do democracy, right? So these, these again, are ideas that persist about uh, countries in the global south. Um, but in 1895, right, war broke out again in Cuba. And this time it was not simply a matter of these Creoles attempting to gain their independence from Spain. There was now a class dimension to the conflict. The insurgents wanted to overthrow the power of both the Spanish military and the Cuban bourgeoisie. And in this conflict, we see like we see something like 40% of the officers in the Army of Liberation being people of color. Um, and that was among the the officers, right? And so you can imagine that among the rank and file, that percentage would have been even higher. Um, the U.S. decided to intervene in this conflict um, because, well, by then it had fully bought into the Monroe Doctrine, which attempted to replace European influence in the Western Hemisphere with purely U.S. influence. And also because the U.S. saw a protracted, a protracted war in Cuba as contrary to its economic interests. And then, of course, Spain made it pretty easy for, for the U.S. public to get behind intervention, since its brutality in suppressing the insurrection included um, the invention of concentration camps by a general named Valeriano Weiler. Um, and then, of course, there was an incident with the armed cruiser the USS Maine that exploded in Havana Harbor and then provided the pretext for the military invasion in 1898. Uh, at this time, the U.S. occupied Cuba and other overseas Spanish colonies like Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines, and also uh, the Kingdom of Hawaii, which was not a Spanish colony, was also occupied that same year as a base of military operations and it has remained occupied ever since. So 1898 really marked the expansion of U.S. empire into and across the Pacific Ocean, as well as the beginning of its period of uh, more or less direct influence over, over Cuban affairs. Tell us about U.S. influence in Cuba leading up to the Batista era. So when the U.S. Um, intervened in Cuba and occupied the island, the Cubans were forced to incorporate something called the Platt Amendment into their new constitution. The clauses in this amendment restricted Cuban sovereignty in significant ways, limiting its ability to enter treaty agreements with other countries and prohibiting the Cuban government from taking on debt obligations, which basically nerfed the country's central bank and its ability to respond to 
um, recessions, economic crises, sort that sort of thing. Um, in the U.S., with with those amendments, they also gave themselves the right to maintain naval bases in Cuba, um, which is why there's still one at Guantanamo. So the U.S. intervention had helped free Cuba from from Spanish domination, only to replace it with neocolonialism. The Cuban insurrectionists had fought for both independence and against domination by the bourgeois planter class, but the U.S. presence guaranteed that this second form of domination by the bourgeoisie would continue. And so there would be no distribution or no redistribution of property, no land reform possible under U.S. occupation and the terms of the Platt Amendment. And this meant that Cuba, for the first 60 years of its existence as an independent country, would be a de facto dependency of the United States. And this is known as Cuba's Republican period because it was now a constitutional republic. But that period was characterized by worsening inequality, uh, a boom in bust economy tied to sugar price fluctuations, growing corruption and the partial or full takeover of key economic sectors by U.S. business people and corporations. Um, utilities like the telephone service in Cuba were U.S.-owned, and much of Cuba's land ended up in the hands of Americans who invested in sugar. Um, your previous guest, uh, Gerald Horn, um, has a book, Race to Revolution which describes uh, a kind of creeping Jim Crow in Cuba as a consequence of U.S. occupation and influence during the first half of the 20th century. And so racial inequality and racial discrimination also increased during this period. And it's thought that, that the influence of the United States played a part in what is known as the race war of 1912 where many black Cubans were, were massacred um, by whites who were, I guess, stirred up in, into sort of a frenzy and a fear uh, of the island's black population, uh, because at that time, blacks uh, in Cuba were demanding their rights. They were resisting attempts to uh, Jim Crowify Cuba. And this was especially the case in, in eastern Cuba, which was and is predominantly black. Um, and these people were demanding their rights as Cuban citizens because they had just participated in a war for independence in which they played a major role. And so you have this period of, of increasing discrimination of a Jim Crow-like regime in Cuba leading up to the revolution. And that's why you see some of the literature produced during the revolutionary period celebrating the end of that regime. Um, one work in particular that I'm thinking of is a poem called Tengo, or I Have, by Nicolas Guillén. And it's a, it's a beautiful poem that talks about... Um, the the feeling of ownership that this black man now feels um ownership of the country right 
everything belongs to the people and he's one of the people. So this new sense of ownership and also this new sense of freedom from restrictions like being hassled when he went into the bank, um, being forced to speak English, to call people sir, um, being restricted from going into nightclubs and so forth. So all that had come to an end with the revolution and there was a newfound freedom for, for black people in Cuba. And it also sounds like the Platt Amendment was a precursor for the U.S. sanctions that came later. So it seems like it's just one of a long line of sanctions placed by the U.S. Yeah, that's a really sharp observation. Um, They're both forms of economic control um, and restriction. And in fact, the sanctions were essentially a direct response to Cuba's termination of the Platt Amendment, because it was when Cuba had nationalized the industries that had fallen into hands of American investors based on the favorable terms of the Platt Amendment. It was then, uh, it was only then when Cuba began to take back what they rightfully saw as their, their national property, right? Um, and, and recover their sovereignty, it was then that the United States began to impose those sanctions. Can you briefly explain what sanctions are and what they do to a country? Sure. I mean, um, you know, sanctions vary, I suppose, according to the particular circumstances and goals. Um, but basically, they are restrictions on um, business deals, uh, sometimes restrictions on economic activity like imports and exports, sometimes restrictions on the exchangeability of currencies. And so all of these have taken place in Cuba, and they've been ongoing for now six decades, um, more than six decades. Now, it's kind of interesting to me that Liberals in the United States often criticize the sanctions regime as having been a failure um, because they have failed to produce regime change, which is thought to be their intended effect, right? To put pressure on the Cuban government so it would eventually collapse, people will get fed up and so forth and, and get rid of the government. Um, I view it a bit differently. I don't think that the sanctions are necessarily intended to produce regime change. I see them more as a form of, well, first of all, collective punishment. Um, And then second of all, really, I I don't think they're intended to produce regime so much regime change as to create an example, to create conditions in which it is very difficult for uh, for any country in Cuba in this case to thrive economically, and so then people in the United States can say, "Oh well, see, socialism doesn't work at all, right?" And so we ignore the adverse conditions in which socialism has had to develop in Cuba, and we just point to it as a as a failed system. And I really think that impression, more than regime change, is what um, sanctions, at least 
in their current iteration and, and the reason for which they've continued so long is really they just want to make an example of Cuba. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you'll help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. How did Batista rise to power and was he a U.S.-backed dictator? Well, he came to power twice. Um, he first arrived on the national scene in 1933, uh, at least that's my understanding, at the head of the so-called Sergeant's Revolt that deposed the Gerardo Machado government. And Machado had been more or less um, a representative or avatar of bourgeois interests on the island. And he had had the impossible task, really, of advancing the business interests of the Cuban bourgeoisie, while at the same time somehow satisfying or placating the demands of the working class, which at in those days was very willing to engage in strikes and disruptions. And he had to kind of do this balancing act all under the constraints of the Platt Amendment, which, as we talked about, limited the ability of the Cuban government to maneuver in, in economic terms. Um, so despite these challenges, Machado hung on to power for almost 10 years um, until the army removed him. And the army in Cuba only did so to avoid another U.S. military intervention. Uh, the U.S. was ready to intervene in that instance to provide what they call stability. But of course, what they mean is to avoid any prospect of working class or socialist reforms uh, in, in, in countries where they intervene. Um, Machado was replaced by a reformist government, which had promised change, but was again constrained by Cuba's lack of real sovereignty. Batista himself didn't become president until 1940, when he was backed actually by a socialist coalition. And at that time, he was more or less a pro-labor president. Um, but when his term was up, uh, he, he seems to have engaged in Trump-like tactics to undermine the incoming government. And at that time, he, he left Cuba. He went to live in the U.S. and uh, returned several years later uh, to get back into politics, uh, running for president again in 1952. And I don't know at which point Batista sort of shifted gears and stopped trying to work for the socialists. Um, but by this point, he was basically in it for himself. And so he, he saw that he was losing this election in 1952 and staged a military coup. Um, the U.S. Um, 
you know, to answer your question about whether he was U.S. backed, um, the U.S. hadn't necessarily been involved in in the coup, but they did as they often do when someone with whom they think they can work seizes power. Uh, they immediately recognized his government. Uh, they didn't call for for new elections. They're just like, okay, you're the guy. Um, and so they did something similar recently in in Honduras. Um, also in Bolivia. Um, so th- there's a pattern that's, that's ongoing. And so in his second presidency, um, he, he, he did indeed prove uh, very willing to cater to U.S. business interests and also to act as an anti-communist, uh, suppressing the socialists who had once backed him. And so, of course, seeing this, the U.S. was happy to work with him and even provided him with military assistance. And by the end of his regime, Batista had become so bloodthirsty and so corrupt that, that even the U.S. turned its back on him, refusing to provide any additional military assistance, stopping the sale of weapons to Cuba, and just kind of letting events run their course. And so as the revolution progressed and, and the writing was on the wall, Batista eventually fled to the Dominican Republic with a suitcase of cash or something, and uh, he took refuge there under the Trujillo dictatorship. What was life like under the Batista regime, especially for Afro-Indigenous descendants and the poor? So we have this image of Havana during the Batista years, during the 1950s, and it's all glitz and glitter. Casinos, nightlife, cabarets, celebrities like Ernest Hemingway and Rita Hayworth, romanticized mafiosos, um, music, of course, right? Benny Moray at the Tropicana, Perez Prado, right? Mambo Number no. 5, all that great music, the golden age of, of Cuban music. But beyond the lights and in the back rooms of police stations, Batista's political opposition, which in the cities included a lot of university students, idealistic young people who wanted a more democratic Cuba. This opposition was being systematically tortured and murdered. And outside the city, in Cuba's countryside, where many of the people you just mentioned have lived, right? Afro-descendants, indigenous descendants. They were suffering from extreme poverty, uh, from a lack of basic services, a lack of education. And so much of Cuba's poor rural population could not even read. Uh, Schools were small or non-existent. And where they did exist, they tended to be private Catholic schools that not everyone could attend. So behind the glamour and glare of 1950s Havana, People were suffering, sometimes in literal darkness, in places with no electricity. Um, The U.S. had so much influence on the island and and such a large presence on the island. Um, You know, Americans at that time expected to be deferred to by blacks in the U.S. and also by black Cubans. And so the, the kind of cultural expectations associated with Jim Crow were... Uh, imposed in many places in Cuba. Uh, And so there was a kind of color line that had emerged by the 1950s, even though Cuba didn't really have its own tradition 
of that that absolute separation between blacks and whites that 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 grew out of the U.S. South. And when you were mentioning Havana in that period, the way we've seen it glamorized and romanticized in books and movies and such, there were a lot of white Americans, rich white Americans, visiting or moving or having a summer home in Cuba at the time, and also other white Westerners, Europeans coming to Cuba at the time. So there was a lot of back and forth. Exactly. And of course, they brought with them their their own attitudes. And like Americans everywhere, they, they tend to impose those attitudes uh, on on the places they visit. And tragically, in, in recent decades, some of that phenomenon has begun to repeat itself. Uh, because Cuba now depends so heavily on tourism, and because many of those tourists are white Europeans, white Canadians, um, not as many Americans because of the travel restrictions, um, but because those Europeans sometimes have racist attitudes and, and racist preferences, we've seen and scholars have, have noted a reemergence in certain sectors like uh, hotels and restaurants of a kind of color line where people of color are relegated to let's say the back of the house right in 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 restaurant terms right where the front of the house staff are the waiters and bartenders hosts and the back of the house are cooks and dishwashers and that tends now to uh, be reemerging along racial lines. Now, that also has economic consequences for Cubans today, um, because the people in the front of the house right, have access to tips, right? They have access to euros and dollars, right? Currency that uh, is extremely valuable in today's economy in Cuba, and that has tended to reproduce some of the same racial or race-based discrepancies in economic outcomes on the island. And that is a consequence of uh, a couple of things. Uh, we mentioned the six decades of, of um, economic embargo, um, but also the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 90s um, put Cuba and Cuba's economy into crisis mode. And they had to roll back a lot of the progress that they had made in terms of um, social justice, um, just in order to survive. Can you tell us about the revolutionary period and who the key players were? Sure. Um, so in 1953, a, a young lawyer named Fidel Castro led an attack on a major army base in Santiago de Cuba. Uh, that's actually near Guantanamo. One historian uh, called this attack uh, near suicidal, and I think that's probably right. Uh, the idea was to seize weapons and munitions and begin an armed rebellion. At this time, interestingly, uh, Fidel was still associated with the Orthodox Party in Cuba, which had a more or less democratic, nationalist, and anti-corruption platform. And it was a liberal party rather than socialist or communist. Um, however, I think it's safe to say that both Castro brothers, Fidel and Raul, at this time were already influenced by 
by Leninist ideas about vanguard actions and the idea of sparking a revolution, uh, and especially Raoul, who had been involved in socialist organizations during his college years. Um, and for instance, uh, the Castro brothers had already been involved in a plan to overthrow the Trujillo dictatorship in the Dominican Republic. Um, and Fidel had been arrested for stealing police weapons during Bogota, uh, Colombia's uprising following the assassination of Jorge Eliezer Gaitan, who was a leading candidate at that time for Colombia's presidency. And so the Castro brothers uh, at this time are already very clearly um, believers in what today we might call direct action um, and very um, kind of anti-military dictatorship and, and seemingly um, willing to engage in solidarity actions in other Latin American countries. So they were already internationalist in their outlook. Um, and so after the attack on the, the Moncada barracks on July 24th, 1953, the Castro brothers were imprisoned. And then when they were released, they, they left to Mexico where they continued to organize the anti-Batista resistance. Um, and so beyond the Castro brothers, uh, prominent members of the 24th of July movement, as it became to be, as it came to be known, were um, a man named Camilo Cienfuegos, who had become radicalized when he and other University of Havana students were shot at by Batista's forces during a protest. And then, of course, Ernesto Guevara, um, known as Che, an Argentine medical student who had witnessed the U.S.-backed coup against Arbenz in Guatemala and had become convinced that armed revolution was the only path forward for Latin America against U.S. imperialism and neocolonialism. And then finally, uh, Frank Pais was uh, or became the leader of the urban wing of the movement, and he organized primarily in the city of Santiago, where he was eventually murdered by police. And that was kind of the nucleus of the 24th of July movement, which was the most prominent and, and effective node of resistance to Batista, um, but not the only one. Uh, there were others formed by uh, the traditional communist parties in Cuba. Um, also, uh, liberals and students were involved. And it was a pretty broad coalition of resistance, um, which helps to explain the ferocity of, of Batista's repression. In, in the last years that he was in power, he was just desperate to maintain control in the face of so much resistance. Knowing more about the history of Cuba, it's amazing that this revolution was successful at all. So how did that happen and how much did luck play into this? Um, I don't know if I would say luck. I would say, um, you know, a confluence of circumstances um, and also the characteristics and qualities of the individuals involved, um, you know, the Castros and their and their associates in the twenty fourth of July movement uh, demonstrated a real commitment to armed struggle, and so they weren't just holding up uh, signs on street corners, right? They weren't signing petitions, right? They were committed to seizing power, um, which I think differentiated them from a lot of contemporary movements um, 
and even from, let's say, um, the socialist movement in in Chile, right, where um, the socialists came to power democratically, but were then overthrown by a military coup. Uh, one of Castro's criticisms of of Allende and the Chilean socialists was that uh, they they didn't seem to have the grit for for an armed struggle, and uh, I think uh, Fidel is is thought to have made a comment um, along the lines of, "Well, you can't have a revolution if your tanks are obeying traffic lights," meaning that the the socialists in in, in Chile were not perhaps serious revolutionaries um, and not willing to overturn the apple cart. Um, and so these were these were really committed guerrilla fighters. Um, I think I think now you know we tend to to forget that um, because it, it seems remote to us. Um, but they were doing real fighting against a real army, and and they were willing to put themselves at risk in that way. I think also because now we think of radicalism as a type of academic. Which is a good thing too. A lot of good theory and a lot of good learning and education, especially here in the U.S., we're getting from academics. But academic is a world away from a guerrilla fighter. That's that's true, and also you know circumstances have changed. I think the state today, um, you know, governments have a a surveillance capacity and a repressive capacity that far exceeds anything. That, that existed at the time. And so the space for that sort of resistance, I think, is much narrower now. And I think pe- people realize that, that uh, there's not really much hope of uh, taking up arms and confronting the, the army, for instance, in, in most places. The tree has grown much bigger even since then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's, that's part of the story, you know. Um, yeah, I think there, there has been a shift in, in political culture in, in terms of people's willingness to engage in direct action. Um, but again, part of the problem is just the repressive capacity of the state. Um, and so that actually, you know, in the time of, of Batista had, had been undermined somewhat by, by the U.S.'s eventual refusal to continue to provide military assistance, right? And so Batista ended up sort of out on a limb his own military capacity uh, became more and more limited over time. And also, though, there was a broad popular resistance to Batista. There was broad support for the revolutionaries among uh, Cubans of all stripes. Um, and this resistance was, of course, driven by, by the underlying conditions, the, the fact of neocolonialism, and, and really by a longstanding desire for change, dating back to before independence, right? A desire for social justice, for racial equality, things that Cubans had been fighting for since before the time of the U.S. occupation. And and these were ideals that were embodied by the 24th of July movement. Why was and is the U.S. so invested in Cuba? Well, I think the the motivations shift over time. Uh, initially, you know, they were interested in Cuba as they were in in much of Latin America and the Caribbean. You know, due to you know the the Monroe, the Monroe Doctrine, uh, this idea that 
that the U.S. and not Europe would be the the policeman of the Western Hemisphere. Um, and then, of course, uh, with the onset of the Cold War, right, much of uh, the U.S. interventions in Latin America were motivated by anti-communism. Um, and so not just Cuba, right? We can see, you know, the entire Southern Cone, where the U.S. supported military regimes, Central America, um, basically anywhere uh, in the hemisphere where there was any kind of shadow of resistance to to capitalism, right? The U.S. was there uh, getting involved. Um, so, yeah. And, and then, again, as I mentioned before, I think, you know, the, the persistence of the sanctions have to do with a couple of things, with, with the entrenchment of, of anti-Castro Cuban-Americans in high circles of the U.S. government, um, a kind of inertia, because a lot of these sanctions are are in the form of legislation. They're not just, uh, you know, decrees or policies that can be easily revoked. Um, and also, you know, the continued desire to uh, kind of produce the example of supposedly failed socialism. Was there a class and racial difference between the revolutionaries versus Batista supporters? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I think by the end, Batista was not particularly well liked uh, by even uh, his wealthy supporters. Um, uh, or wealthy liberals, at least, um, beyond his closest associates. And part of it was that a lot of the Cuban elites had never liked Batista uh, for racist reasons, right? He was um, himself of mixed race, uh, the first um, prominent mixed race politician in Cuba. Um, during his first presidency, uh, as I alluded to, he had a lot of support from the working class due to his pro-labor policies. But by the 1950s, when Batista returned to the presidency in a military coup, he had turned his back on the working class and was essentially ruling on behalf of his own self-interest. And it, it became eminently clear that he was in the pocket of the U.S. government, U.S. business interests, and organized crime. And it wasn't always clear that there was a difference between those groups. Um, so even though the beneficiaries of this policies tended to be wealthy and white, uh, and both class and racial inequalities reached perhaps their worst point ever under his rule, Cubans of all colors came to resent Batista for his corruption and his brutality. Uh, his anti-communist secret police, known as the, the Bureau, the Bureau, had tortured and killed thousands of people. And this repression only intensified as resistance to his government increased. We have this idea that Cuban Americans became conservative after they came to the U.S., but is it more so the case that many of them were already conservative and possibly supportive of Batista? Oh, sure. Um, especially in the initial wave of emigration after 1959. These emigres were often Batista associates who fled because at that point the game was up, right? Uh, if they had stayed, they would be, you know, tried for corruption or even prosecuted for war crimes in some cases. Um, 
And then some of the people who left were also business owners who, you know, did not want to uh, live under a socialist government um, and who really put their personal wealth above all else, even, even patriotism. Um, and some of these people became extremely influential in the U.S., um, and they helped shape U.S. policy and public opinion about Cuba for many decades. Um, to cite just one example, Rafael Diaz-Balart was a Batista associate and Cuban politician in Batista's government, um, who happens to have been uh, actually Fidel Castro's brother-in-law um, through uh, Castro's first marriage. And uh, Diaz-Balart emigrated to the U.S., and he had children who uh, are very prominent, um, including two U.S. congressmen, one current, uh, one former, a television anchor for Univision, which is uh, actually the largest uh, network in the United States, um, at least last time I checked, um, the Spanish-speaking network. Um, and another of his children is an investment banker. So some of these people transitioned rather easily from being part of the conservative um, elite in Cuba to forming part of the same circles in in the U.S. Um, later waves of Cuban immigrants to the U.S. have tended to be less wealthy, less white, and even less conservative, um, since many of them left Cuba out of economic necessity uh, rather than uh, an ideological opposition to the Cuban government. And this can tie back to the sanctions that you were mentioning. Correct. Um, there, were, there were several waves of um, immigration out of Cuba um, after 1959 in the early 60s when you know, that initial wave that I mentioned happened, um, one of which happened, I want to say 1981. The exact date is escaping me. Um, there was um, a wave of of people um, who left Cuba in in what's known as the Mariel boat lift um, for both political and economic reasons. Um, and then in the 1990s, there was another wave of um, what are called balseros or rafters who uh, left Cuba because economic conditions on the island uh, in the wake of the collapse of the socialist bloc had become extremely dire. Especially during the time of Trump's presidency, we had much more blatant and outright racism in the conservative party. And sometimes they would use Cubans as their shield to claim, how can we be racist? We have Cubans amongst our rank and file. But I think not just based on what you just said about who were some of the initial Cuban immigrants to the U.S., but also looking at the context, this idea that none of those Cubans can be racist or that because you accept the Cuban means you cannot be racist is much more murky and it's not so black and white and doesn't really work as a shield at all. If you know the history of slavery, like you mentioned in that country, how long it lasted, not just the history of colonialism, but the later adoption of U.S. Jim Crow-like uh, white supremacy that happened in that country. 
And also you have people like, I believe, like Ted Cruz, who's Cuban, but I believe he's 100% white. So <laughs> I think you can also have instances like that where just, I think because like I said about the racism of the US where the bar is so high, but also to your point about education being so US centric, the assumption is by geography, you could tell if somebody is non-white. And so because they are from a certain region, they are not white and I am accepting this person. So therefore I cannot be racist. Yeah, that's a super interesting phenomenon and, and almost a brilliant ploy by U.S. conservatives. It's sort of a political version of the alibi of, of the black friend, right? To say, oh, well, we have, we have Latino supporters, so obviously they don't think we're racist, right? But what that ignores is, of course, that, that many of those uh, Latino supporters are themselves white, whether or not they are completely accepted as white by all Americans or not, right? Uh, in their countries of origin, they are considered white and um, often have the wealth and status associated with whiteness. And that's certainly the case with, with some of uh, the Cuban-American community. You also have the phenomenon of um, people uh, becoming white or gaining access to whiteness, right? As their economic fortunes improve, right? There, there's an old saying that that money whitens, right? El dinero blanquea. And that's this idea that as one's economic prospects improve, they have access to the trappings of whiteness. And so even uh, Latinos who may have a generation ago been been coded as non-white in this country are now through economic advancement sort of making ground, right? And, and conquering the territory of whiteness. And a lot of people were surprised to see how many uh, Latino voters had voted Republican in the last election. And I think some of that is a consequence of them simply voting in their economic interests as many of them become more prosperous and, and what we call in this country middle class. Then we see a through line where initially, especially with Spanish colonialism, religion gave you access or proximity to your ownness or humanity, whiteness, however you want to think about it. But now it's no longer religion, but it's wealth that gives you proximity to whiteness and all the other rights that whiteness affords, which you could get a lot of from wealth. Right. And then to your point, we also saw a lot of this during the recent UFC, UFC 261, where people were booing Kamaru Usman, who is not only a black fighter, but an African fighter, and cheering Jorge Masvidal, who is a Cuban-American. And then when called out on that racism, they said, how can I be racist? Jorge <laughs> Masvidal is a brown person. He's Cuban. So I can't be racist. Right. I think this whole episode illustrates that, yes, you can still be racist. Yeah, yeah. And that whole definition of racism uh, rests on, on the traditional binary, right, that has existed in the United States between white people and everybody else. And I think as, as the country diversifies, that binary gets complicated a bit and, and things shift. And it's perfectly possible for people to exhibit racism towards one group and acceptance towards another group of people of color. 
Now, one of the key players that you mentioned earlier, Che Guevara, didn't live long after the Cuban Revolution. What happened to him? Well, Che uh, remained uh, a big part of the Cuban Revolutionary Government after the, the rebels' victory in 1959. Um, he had a number of assignments, uh, one of which uh, was overseeing the tribunals for Batista collaborators and war criminals, um, but he was also involved in promoting the long overdue land reform. He pushed for the literacy campaign, which was one of um, Cuba's great successes, which is acknowledged uh, usually by even by even by anti-communists as as a success, the the improvement in the literacy rate um, in rural Cuba. Um, che also designed military training programs um, for, for the newly formed army under the revolutionary government. He was involved in international diplomacy, and he even became finance minister, um, kind of pulling the strings of, of the Cuban economy as they were attempting to reform it along socialist lines. Um, so he was a very busy man, um, but by 1965, Guevara became disillusioned with what he considered a lack of support from socialist countries for independence and anti-colonial struggles in the global south. And it was at this point that he left politics and resumed direct revolutionary action first in Congo against Mobuto, and later in Bolivia against the military dictatorship of René Barrientos. And during both of these campaigns, the U.S. was monitoring Guevara's activities and providing military assistance to the anti-communist governments of both countries, eventually leading to Guevara's capture. And then what happened after he was captured? Well, there was a CIA operative in Bolivia named Felix Rodriguez. And Rodriguez was a Cuban-American whose family had ties to the Batista regime. And uh, Rodriguez had helped orchestrate the failed Bay of Pigs invasion. He was sent to Bolivia to assist Barrientos in locating Guevara and stopping his revolutionary activities um, in 1967, the Bolivian military located Che, surrounded his encampment and attacked and wounded him and captured him. And uh, Che was subsequently uh, executed illegally without a trial. And it appears that the, the Bolivian president himself ordered Che's summary execution and that this CIA operative, Felix Rodriguez, uh, attempted to cover up the, the war crime by making it look like Che had died in battle. And so the Bolivian soldier who killed Guevara was instructed to shoot him several times in the legs and body rather than in the head. Um, so this was a brutal execution orchestrated by a brutal U.S. regime that during these same years had supported and enabled coups, massacres, and genocide throughout the world in the name of anti-communism. Whether you're pro or anti-Cuban revolution, I don't think people appreciate all the things that happened in Cuba, not only before the revolution, but before the Europeans. People also only look at Cuba from the framework of being 
pro or anti-communist without ever acknowledging the problems of Spanish conquest, settler colonialism, slavery, and white supremacy. For third world revolutions, we think of them as fights for communism, which in itself is problematic and white-centric, because in actuality, it's a fight for liberation against all those things I mentioned, with communism being the most viable tool during the post-World War II period. And you could also recognize that after the great powers just fought each other, there's an opportunity there to perhaps gain your liberation. So thank you for giving us a crash course on Cuba, Jonathan. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Where can people find you? Well, uh, I'm not famous enough to say Google me. So um, you can find me on Twitter at John underscore Detman. Uh, that's at J-O-N underscore D-E-T-T-M-A-N. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye. South Pauls, hidden with the left. South Pauls, Sam, Paul, South Paul, South Paul.